0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At
1: a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's line takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Cloudy skies, there's rain in many parts of the state. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott, and we'll begin with the weather Hurricane Sally made landfall as a Category 2 storm earlier today near Gulf Shores, Alabama. Now, the hurricane was downgraded to a Category 1 storm. But still, forecasters warned Sally could bring historic flooding and hurricane force-like winds. Now, here in Atlanta, this has led to a flash flood watch across the area. And also, we're expected to see 3 to 4 inches of rain from now until friday now that will be concentrated mostly in the southern area of the city of course we know that could change this flash flood watch is in effect until friday morning in other news atlanta mayor keisha lance bottoms is urging residents to continue to do their part in fighting COVID 19 transmission the mayor is also urging folks to vote early and complete the 2020 census now, during a press conference this morning, Mayor Bottom said that Atlanta has a 57.7 response rate to the census.
3: We also want to be uh, mindful that um, census money is important for communities, especially as we see communities that will need to rebuild. It's important because it helps determine the amount of infrastructure money it comes into our communities. It determines what funding we get for our schools. It determines our representation in Congress and so much more. And this is only done every 10 years.
2: Now Mayor Bottom says the city is working to make sure that all Atlantans are counted and that the city will continue its efforts to reach those low response communities. Now the deadline to fill out the census online over the phone or on paper is September 30th. For more information, just visit 2020census.gov. And as mentioned earlier, the mayor said during this press conference that she wanted to give an update on how the city is responding to all the COVID-19 concerns.
3: But I just want to remind people that COVID is still deadly. And uh, what I have been told by Dr. Carlos Del Rio from Emory University, who I I can't thank enough for his input and his guidance to the city of Atlanta. But what he has shared is right now we are seeing a spike in COVID numbers in Hispanic communities, but African Americans are still dying at a higher rate.
2: Now, Mayor Bottoms says it's critical all residents continue to practice social distancing, wear a mask and limit gatherings to 10 people or less. And according to the mayor, if cases continue to decrease, the city will actually go into phase three on September 23rd. Now, Mayor Bottoms has already issued executive orders to continue the suspension of water bills, booting. We've all been there and towing and also business taxes and hazard pay for city workers has been extended through late December. And then there's this from the governor's office. After months of being closed to the outside world because of the coronavirus pandemic, visitors will now be allowed inside long-term care facilities in Georgia. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp made the announcement yesterday as he issued his latest executive order addressing COVID-19. The governor says visitation at nursing homes and other facilities will be allowed to res- can now resume under some conditions. The guidance has not been released by state public health officials. So at this time, there are 6,398 Georgians who have reportedly died due to the coronavirus. The State Department of Public Health is reporting there are 296,833 confirmed cases here in the state and 26,665 hospitalizations of those 4,870 are ICU admissions. And now on to some related news regarding COVID-19. A nurse at a Georgia immigrant detention center is raising concerns about how the facility is operating with COVID-19 infections and efforts to stop the transmission of the virus along with some other pretty heavy allegations. In a 27-page report to the Department of Homeland Security Office of Inspector General, Nurse Don Wooten says she was demoted from the Irwin County Immigrant Detention Center after questioning the facility's health standards. Now, Nurse Wooten also alleges women detainees at the facility received unnecessary hysterectomies from an outside doctor. Now, in a statement, Immigration and Customs Enforcement says it does not comment on issues before the Inspector General, we'll have more from that statement in just a moment. It also said it does take these allegations seriously, but anonymous and unproven ones should be treated with skepticism. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Azadeh Shashahani, Legal and Advocacy Director at Project South, one of the organizations which filed the complaint with the Department of Homeland Security Office of Inspector General on behalf of Nurse Wooten and As always, Azadeh, Shashahani, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
2: When did Project South become aware of these allegations?
4: Well, so we got in touch with Ms. Wooten uh, over the summer. Um, But, you know, we've been basically following the situation at the Irving County Detention Center for a long time. You know, we've been documenting conditions at Mm -hmm. that facility for several years, and we put out a report in 2017, um, with you know detailed information about the healthcare, or more accurately, lack of healthcare um, at that facility, and um, you know we were following the situation with COVID and how the facility was responding. You know, one issue that was of really grave concern to us is um, several women at the Irving County Detention Center in the spring, when the pandemic had just broke, got together and produced a video. Um, and talk to the outside about how they were, you know, not um, being provided the care, the personal care equipment that they needed. Obviously there is no social distancing possible in a detention center, and they were able to get that video out. And then instead of responding and addressing their concerns, this corporate-run detention center retaliated against the women. They put them in solitary confinement. And so that was obviously of grave concern to us. And so we've been, you know, documenting the conditions during the pandemic. And then when we heard from Ms. Wooten, and obviously the treatment that she had suffered and everything that, um, you know, she was uh, observing, we thought we really need to go public with this and raise it to the attention of the Department of Homeland Security, Office of Inspector General, as well as Congress. And for our
2: listeners who may not be familiar, you can document allegations, but how do you all follow up for an investigation, or do you ask for an investigation in order to address the allegations? So I'm listening to and say, well, how do you know when these allegations are even potentially true to begin with?
4: Right. Well, you know, as I mentioned, we've been documenting conditions at that facility for a long time. We have visited the facility, we have toured the facility. We have spoken to the people inside there many times. Um, we have spoken to lawyers. We have you know, reviewed documents pertaining to management of the facility. And um, you know, th- the information in the report was obtained through, uh, in the complaint, I should say, uh, was obtained through talking to uh, the people that we spoke to currently detained at the facility and also Miss So it came from different sources.
2: Mm-hmm. And let's go over some of these allegations first as it relates to COVID-19. Through your knowledge, through your organization's knowledge, if anyone, if any detainee, do they have to request a COVID-19 test? Or was the detention center already doing these just for the sake of, you know, obviously stopping the potential spread of the virus? What do you know about what their operating procedures were as it relates to COVID-19?
4: Right. I mean, as far as we know, they were refusing uh, to test people until that issue was brought to our attention and we filed a separate complaint, both with ICE and the Department of Homeland Security, Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. You know, this this issue is obviously of grave concern. If you don't know, if you're not testing people, how do you know who has COVID at that facility? Um, And then, you know, when we filed the complaint, then they started testing people because I think they were afraid of public attention to this issue.
2: In fact, you all in the complaint, and this is according to one immigrant who told Project South, quote, many of us have been sick in the unit or have some type of symptom for a very long time. We started complaining. We were complaining to the captain and fighting for a long time because we needed at least to be tested There's no way at all for us to be safe here. The guidelines say social distancing here. We cannot keep the social distancing. We share everything together. That has been what you all have been hearing from a lot of the folks housed at the detention center.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Let's get to the other allegation from nurse Wooten about these unneeded hysterectomies that allegedly women were receiving. Now, to your knowledge, do we have an exact number over a period of time of how many women receive this procedure?
4: So we don't have the exact number. Um, you know, since the story broke a couple of days ago, there have been um, other news stories separately, um, basically corroborating this and also talking to immigration lawyers who have expressed concern about Um, you know, the reproductive care that um, their clients received or, again, more accurately, did not receive. I mean, this is an issue of huge concern. Here you have um, women in an extremely vulnerable situation, uh, immigrant women, you know, many of whom uh, may not speak English uh, fluently, Basically, they're at the mercy of, um, you know, ICE and the private prison corporation and, you know, whoever they may have contracted with. Um, So, you know, they go to a doctor's office thinking that they're going to get something taken care of and then return with, um, you know, a procedure being performed that they did not ask for. I mean, there's confusion around what was done and what wasn't done. So, I mean, the whole picture is very ugly and disturbing. Um, how women's bodies have been abused at this facility and definitely um, Congress needs to look into this.
2: Now in that statement from ICE although they say they don't comment on matters presented to the Office of the Inspector General but did go on to say that there are no procedures that are performed without consent and also through our research we've only been able to discover that maybe it's been about 3,800 women I believe that have come through this detention center within the last two years. But we do not know how many of these women have received a hysterectomy. The doctor, although not mentioned by name in your report, other media outlets have mentioned that doctor's name. We will not because we have not verified that. Have you all been able to verify any of these women who have come forward and said, I have had a hysterectomy and I did not consent to this?
4: Well, we have talked to um, several women and, you know, some of them have had um, operations uh, performed, but then they have also referred to us and talked about other women that they spoke to. And, you know, Ms. Wooten has also um, talked about, um, you know, what she heard from the women that she was in touch with. And again, other immigration lawyers have also talked about the experiences of their, mm-hmm. of their clients. Um, so I would say, you know, we're so early in this process you know, the reason we filed this complaint is because we found this issue of grave concern. And here we have one whistleblower telling us about her experience at the facility, an extremely courageous woman, I should say. Um, And so, you know, what we hope to achieve is that, you know, through uh, through a congressional inquiry, um, there would be um, additional attention, obviously, you know, formal investigation. um, So there can be clarity around what was exactly happening Um, you know, with this doctor at this facility, you know, how are women being um, abused in this fashion? So, um, yeah, again, there's absolutely a need for congressional inquiry.
2: And I imagine because of COVID-19, unless it is of grave necessity, are folks allowed, or folks like your organizations, attorneys, immediate family members, are they allowed to visit now the detention center Or is that still a ban because of the concerns about transmitting the virus?
4: Right. Yeah. So we have not been visiting since the pandemic broke. Um, We have, however, spoke to um, people on the phone and, you know, same with the journalists who have been looking into this further.
2: You and I have had many conversations about not only this detention center, but in in general. And and so where do you want to see it go from here? you mentioned you want Congress to step in. You want further investigations. What's the timeline here? What's acceptable for you all?
4: You know, we want Irving to be shut down. (laughs) We've been asking for this for a long time, you know, both the Irving County Detention Center and the Stewart Detention Center, another very problematic corporate-run detention center. Both of these places need to be shut down. And it's very troubling that, you know, we've been asking for this, we've been basically um, raising the red flag. Um, We've been um, highlighting, you know, the concerns and the tragedies at both of these facilities and nobody was um, paying any attention. So, you know, it is good that finally people are paying some attention. You know, we do hope that there is a congressional investigation and Mm -hmm. we do hope that ultimately this um, really troubling facility is shut down and people are free.
2: And do you know if nurse Don Wooten, is she still an employee of the Ditchinson Center? What's her status there? Do you know?
4: So I don't have that information in terms of her current mm-hmm. status. But um, again, a very courageous person. Um, she, you know, since um, her hours were reduced, um, she's been basically struggling and, you know, trying to. Um, find different employment. So, um, Mm. you know, people should definitely have her back because it takes just an incredible amount of courage to come forward.
2: Azadeh Shashahani, Legal and Advocacy Director at Project South, one of the organizations which have filed a complaint with the Department of Homeland Security Office of Inspector General on behalf of Nurse Don Wooten, who works at the Irwin County Detention Center located in Osceola, Georgia. Now, Nurse Wooten alleges an improper response to COVID-19 and alleges hysterectomies were performed on women without their consent. Azadeh, as always, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100 mile coast. A landscape unlike any other, Georgia's coast is home to vital communities and people from all walks of life fighting to protect it. Help keep Georgia's coast flowing at ourgeorgiacoast.org.
2: You're tuned to Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Some have called it an eviction storm. What's currently happening and what's going to happen whenever the the nation gets through this pandemic. Now the Atlanta-based Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recently enacted a nationwide ban on evictions because of the pandemic. And the measure which lasts until December 31st says landlords should not evict those who are unable to pay rent due to financial challenges brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. And also understand this, That if you have all these folks who do not have shelter, well, what's the likelihood of even spreading this virus even more? Now, this comes at a time when an estimated 30 to 40 million people across the country could face eviction. That's according to a recent Aspen Institute study. Let's talk about Atlanta. Let's bring this closer to home. Joining me now to discuss all of this, he's a longtime leader and advocate, Jack Hardin, co-chair of the Regional Commission on Homelessness. We featured him not too long ago on this program. He's also the co-founder of the Gateway Center, a facility that serves those who are unsheltered in downtown Atlanta. Jack Harden, thanks for coming back on the program. I really appreciate it. Good to see you.
0: Good to see you, Rose. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: You know, when we were down there at the Gateway Center, and we talked about a lot. We didn't talk about the impact of a pandemic on what folks like you all have been able to do for so many years. But let's begin there and the impact of this pandemic on folks you all serve and what you've been able to do for so many years. What's it been like, Jack?
0: Well, the, the homeless population, as you know, has particular vulnerabilities and particularly the unsheltered ones. There's actually a good story here, Rose, in terms of the way the Atlanta community came together, the city, the county, the philanthropic community. But the first impact was that a number of shelters uh, closed their doors to new admittees Mm -hmm. as a way of protecting their existing population, which began to limit the options that unsheltered people had. Churches closed, businesses closed, and the numbers of people seeking shelter on public infrastructure like MARTA and the airport tripled in a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. And the Atlanta community, under the leadership of... um, partners for home and city hall uh, with a very significant role being played by gateway came together and developed a strategic plan, uh, strongly supported uh, essentially supported by mercy care and Grady and others and developed a plan um, that uh, I think was comprehensive. First of all, we opened up an isolation hotel for people who were infected, but had no home or place to isolate. Mm -hmm. We opened up a, uh, healthy hotel for people who tested negative but were unsheltered and were otherwise seeking support at uh, places like the airport or martyr and had high levels of vulnerability. Uh, We tested the entire homeless population over a five week period in April and uh, the first week in May. We were the first city in the country to completely test all the sheltered population. We came up with a very low infection rate. We tested maybe 3,800 people. We had fewer than 40 positives. Those, of course, were able to go to the isolation hotel. And we were able to protect the homeless community from getting community transmission. And even today, uh, as we continue to test, the positive rate among our homeless population is less than 2%, which is significantly lower by a factor of four than what we're experiencing at the community at large. So we're very proud of that result. So, Jack,
2: that 3,800, that number that you mentioned, that was a combined number of folks who were currently in facilities, or was it also folks who were living living out on the street? I want to be clear for our listeners.
0: Yes, it it included the people in our shelters and as many unsheltered people as we could get. And we continue to test on a regular rotating basis among uh, the homeless providers Uh, to continue to uh, uh, see if we can identify and isolate people uh, who might be positive.
2: Jack, the latest numbers that we received from the most recent study came up with about, it was about 3,800. That was a number that was given in terms of folks who are unsheltered uh, through the city of Atlanta. And Jack, you and I know that we can drive around, go downtown Atlanta near Grady Hospital, You still see a lot of folks right there off of 75 and 85. There's almost like a a camping
0: area. We see these folks out there. Are y'all reaching those folks? Well, first, a point of clarification. Mm -hmm. The count that you're referring to is probably the count that was done in January Mm -hmm. of 2020. And that number is actually 3,200, and it's sheltered and unsheltered. The unsheltered number was was over 900, so let's say uh, near 1,000. OK. Uh, and that's a historical. Number. That was a point in time in January. And the phenomenon that you're referring to that you observe on the streets, we all see. And we frankly think that one of the effects of the pandemic has been that the unsheltered population has increased. Uh, because, as I mentioned, the, the options of uh, a number of shelters uh, close their door to, to, uh, to new admittees and mm-hmm. so forth. We tried to address that with the uh, Healthy Homeless Hotel, which has a capacity of about 250. Uh, but yes, I, I do have the sense um, that there is an increase in the unsheltered population. Mm-hmm. It's also more visible because there's nobody else on the streets. Many of our businesses are operating from home. And, um, but yes, I, I do think it has increased. And as to your question, are we reaching them? Yes. we. Beefed up a robust, robust uh, outreach strategy. We pivoted from what we had been doing with outreach initially, to focus on providing sanitation uh, instructions, uh, provide uh, uh, hand sanitizer uh, instructions about washing, and, and uh, then a, a, an effort to get people to be housed. In fact, we we are met, patching together a strategy now called Lift, <laughs> under the leadership of. Partners for Home, where we're going to try to house in a very short period of time, 2,000 plus of our most vulnerable people, our chronically uh, uh, homeless and our unsheltered population because of a spe- some special cares money that the city of Atlanta has gotten
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and some support from the philanthropic community.
2: And Jack, what about the Gateway Center? How have you all had to change your operation during all of this?
0: Well, first of all, we we had to uh, focus very much on social distancing, um, good hygiene with hands and and washing and and use of the sanitizer. I will say the Gateway specifically and our shelter population in general had a little bit of a head start on this because we had a TB epidemic in our community, had two actually, uh, in this decade. Mm -hmm. And uh, we developed protocols of uh, Uh, to observe and isolate and test uh, for that. And uh, it was easy to quickly reactivate all those strategies, Uh, but it has impacted us. Uh, For example, our uh, low barrier shelter, we reduced the numbers that we take into that in order to space uh, people out better. Uh, And we we had to uh, cancel our volunteer program because many of our volunteers have vulnerabilities uh, so it's put more stress on our staff. We let people work at home to the extent they can and mm-hmm. interview people virtually and that sort of thing. But I'm real proud of Raphael Holloway and his team. They've done a great job and responding. Gateway, one just other point, if I may. Mm-hmm. Gateway has done the uh, identification, hiring, training, and supervision of the staff for these hotels we stood up, the isolation hotel. and uh, So they've they've taken on a larger role. Philanthropy, but philanthropy, by the way, has been fantastic. I mean, we had the philanthropic community standing up and saying, how can we help? We want to be a part of the solution here. Uh, and they very quickly responded to needs when they were identified. It's a great Atlanta story.
2: Well, we're going to get to the solutions in just a moment. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Jack Harden. He is the co-founder of the Gateway Center, and it's a facility that has a long history in this community. And he also serves as co-chair of the Regional Commission on Homelessness. And we're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic, obviously, and concerns about that there will be an increase in those who are unsheltered, not just here in Atlanta, but obviously nationwide and what area organizations are doing to help. So, Jack, before we get to solutions, I mean, the CDC, the the moratorium on the evictions, it's a great, for some, they say, well, yeah, it's great. How do you enforce that? What's your view on that? And and how do you see it helping, if it can? Because we're already hearing that some landlords and property managers are
0: seeking a legal avenue. It it is helpful, but imperfect. Uh, It's helpful in the sense that it does give us some time for the people who can benefit on it to craft a responsive strategy to help keep people in their homes. It's imperfect because... It's technically complex. There are procedural things that tenants must do, uh, file uh, affidavits and notices and so forth uh, that are complicated for anybody and even more complicated for people who are struggling under the stresses of lost or reduced income and and, uh, diminished ability to support themselves. Uh, It also, uh, I think, uh, is imperfect as it applies to the limited stay hotel a component of of, uh, shelter. Many families and people shelter in uh, limited stay hotels. I think there's good legal authority established by legal aid and several suits around uh, the community that if you're in a limited stay hotel for three months or more, all of the eviction rules apply to the uh, operator of the hotel. That's not universally observed by the operators of these hotels. And uh, so there has been some self-help Uh, I would say, extra-legal self-help exercise. On the other hand, there are many operators of those hotels who are very sympathetic and understanding and Mm -hmm. are working with us to try to keep people sheltered. So short answer is helpful but imperfect.
2: Mm. But at the core of this, Jack, and you and I both know, is that if folks are evicted and they have nowhere to turn to, many folks are concerned about, which is the immediate help, that can be provided for for households in this situation. And that brings me to this new initiative called SOAR. And you've talked about this before, the importance of agencies, cities. It's a holistic approach to this. And you've been in this space for a long time, Jack. And you've said, you know, look, this is not something that we could get done in, in a decade. And since the time you started and and you and former Mayor Shirley Franklin and all the other folks that have been involved in these these initiatives so now here comes another one um, what's your response to someone who says well what are we missing here what's not working that we can't seem to get a hold on atlanta's unsheltered population you know you mentioned not you mentioned that 900 number is, is a great number it's promising obviously it's no longer up in the thousands but you know some will say well even 900 within the city of atlanta 900 unsheltered people on the streets that's still that's still too much
0: it, it is too much, and it's important to point out that that's just the city of Atlanta, mm-hmm. which is a, an important part, but only a part of our metropolitan area, and there are unsheltered people in all our uh, surrounding counties. And um, yes, the number is is too large, and um, we're attacking that with this lift strategy I adverted to a minute ago where we hope to house a couple thousand people. But let's remember that um, uh, if you've been traumatized uh, in any of the hundreds of ways that the population experiencing homelessness has been traumatized, uh, sometimes you're suspicious, fearful, uh, and uh, this is a voluntary process. We offer people help, but they need to also choose help. But sometimes mm-hmm. it's easier for them to cope in the realm that they've already learned how to cope in than it is to take the risk of trusting somebody and move into a new environment. Sure. So it, it's a labor intensive process of building trust and help. And I think we have in place a lot of good strategies, but work to do. SOAR is is different. SOAR is based on the principle that as we suffer through this pandemic and the consequent economic uh, recession, or worse um, that it has caused. It's better for everybody, for people to stay in their housing, Mm -hmm. even if they've lost their income and their ability to pay the cost. It's obviously better for the people to be housed and not housed. It's also better for our community not to have 30 or 40,000 households who are unsheltered and unable to pay shelter. Mm -hmm. And it's better for the operators of shelter to get some cash flow rather than uh, sit with vacant units. Um, landlords have to pay operating costs. Landlords have to pay um, their mortgages in order to have those properties available for people to live in. So uh, we all are victims of the of the pandemic and caused economic problem. And SOAR is simply a strategy of shared paying, uh, approaching landlords and tenants alike. Tenants pay what they can, landlords Uh, make what concessions they can philanthropy uh, fills the gap and and frankly we really hope and believe at some point the federal government to get back in the game the need is too great Mm -hmm. uh, for any one thumb to block the hole in the dike we we really need the federal cavalry to come back into the game Uh, and in that sense the cdc moratorium gives us a little bit better more organizing time Mm -hmm. and soar is a is a joint project of the entire community. We have four sponsoring organizations, the Atlanta Regional Commission, Community Foundation for Great Atlanta, United Way of Greater Atlanta, and the Metropolitan Chamber of Commerce. Together with great volunteer assistance from firms like Ernst & Young and Austin & Bird and Cox Curry, uh, the Federal Reserve uh, team providing us research and data. It is a community-wide, all-hands-on-deck strategy uh, and uh, we need that in order to uh, keep people in their housing as long as we can.
2: And we should note SOAR as an acronym for Save Our Atlanta Residents. Jack, as we wrap up, you know, in our last conversation, we talked about hey, how you you had taken on the charge with the help of others with eliminating homelessness in the city within 10 years, starting in 2013 you mentioned you need the federal government, you need the cavalry to come in. Well, right now the cavalry is having trouble <laughs> getting along with each other. So uh, meanwhile, while we wait for them to get all their stuff in order, so to speak, how would you assess how this city has been doing since 2013 in trying to eliminate homelessness?
0: Yeah, so one quick correction. SOAR is S-O-A-R-R, Save Our Atlanta Regions residents. It's okay. very much a strategy, but uh, Well, it's mixed. Uh, I think we've done a great job when you compare our performance to the other major cities in the country in terms of reducing our homeless counts. And and, um, on the other hand, we still have uh, way too many people who are homeless. And I think to a certain extent, we've sort of plateaued our dramatic improvements from 2003 through uh, 2009. We're sort of on a... uh, flat right now we're not making those great improvements Uh, our numbers are going down a little bit but our unsheltered numbers are going up so uh, we still have a lot of work to do Uh, but there are a lot of people at the table and the community still has homelessness on its agenda Uh, from all our mayors from the time I got involved in this have focused on this issue and made it an important community issue Uh, and certainly philanthropy in the atlanta community has been steadfast and generous but uh we've learned a lot in the last two decades about what what works and what doesn't work and uh, we're we've got great partnerships started up now with marta now with Mm caseworkers riding the marta's supporting us doing that and uh, so it's a it's a mixed report i say all in all i'm very proud of the progress we made there are literally thousands of people in homes that wouldn't have in those homes but for the work that our community's done but as you said before there are thousands that are still
2: Mm
0: -hmm. uh, not in control of their nighttime shelter and we need to keep up the work but the exigency right now is sheltered people who are at risk of losing shelter Uh, we've had that problem because of our affordable housing crisis and and frankly the general economic inequity of our society of which atlanta is uh I think, particularly burdened, but uh, it's now compounded by this economic crisis.
2: Mm. And a public health crisis at that. Jack Harden, co-founder of the Gateway Center. We all know it's a longtime facility that serves those who are unsheltered shelter in downtown Atlanta and also serves as co-chair of the Regional Commission on Homelessness. If you want to find out more about the equity fund for eviction prevention called SOAR, Save Our Atlanta Regions Residents, is that correct? yes. Jack, thank you so much for taking time as always. Thank you for what you and so many are trying to do to help folks in our our community.
0: Rhodes, thank you for keeping these issues on the public's mind. I appreciate it.
2: All right, you take care. Stay safe, Jack. Okay, you too. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 W-A-B-E, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Before we close out today's show, I want to tell you about tomorrow's program, Training the Next Generation of Leaders Today. That's the focus of a conversation with 21st Century Leaders. It's a local nonprofit that's working to connect, inspire, and transform young Georgians.
1: The organization is led by the students. So we have students who introduce our professional guests and thank them. And we have a during the Summer Institute, fancy dinner. So they are have a lot of speaking roles and we volunteer them for it. And sometimes it's, we have kids who are ready to go speak to the United Nations, and we got kids who are you know, just too shy to do it, but we don't care about that when we ask them to do these things. Mm-hmm. And they sometimes will ask, why me? And you know, some of the responses I would give is, why not you? And I would tell them uh, when I've been Summer Director that if you're not the best speaker, then choose this opportunity to speak now because this is a very low stakes environment. Everyone is supportive. And I mean that truly, I've seen the kids clap for uh, a student who was shaking while speaking in front of the the group. And and everyone understood that this person was deadly afraid of of speaking in, uh, in public. And then also, I think they ask about failure because for some of our students, their parents are like, you're either a doctor a lawyer or nothing. Either you get the A or you fail. And sometimes when our guests tell them that failure is good, they react like it's the first time they've heard that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because some, some of these parents, you know, put a lot mm-hmm. of pressure on, on their, their kids. And I, I think what they really ask is, you know, how do I get interested? How do I get involved in the things I'm interested in? How can I learn more?
3: Mm -hmm. And
1: that's where our professional volunteers and our our summer staff who are also alumni of the program, we get involved. So we have people who are currently in college and uh, people who are professionals who volunteer, and we tell them about our stories and tell them that it wasn't always a clear-cut path. Mm -hmm. Or even when it started off clear-cut, we realized quickly that that might not have been what we wanted to do. And so I I think some of those questions come from the anxiety of the future, uh, but also Uh, sort of questioning why they're being pushed to to step outside their boxes. But they appreciate it nonetheless.
2: Be comfortable being uncomfortable is what we
0: always tell them.
2: I've heard that since I was a little girl as well. (laughs) Isabella, when you hear what Kate and, and Professor Jacques Corey, when they talk about the mission and the vision of the organization and what it's done for you, and you talked about that earlier in this segment, So my question for you now is moving forward, you know, what are you hoping to do with this this opportunity, this leadership opportunity that you've been involved in?
5: So what I'm planning on doing is starting my own um, mental health collaborative workshop. So where I will talk to a group of teens about different mental health issues and kind of um, bring awareness to those things, because we're currently in a time where a lot of people are going through different things Mm -hmm. and their emotions are running wild. Um, and to ease that stress, I feel like by building this workshop, it could help be a safe and protective space for teens. And that is definitely imperative and something that we truly need at this time.
2: And Isabel, let me ask you this do you think, as, because we're old, let's just be really clear, I'm old, <laughs> what are we missing in terms of reaching out to your generation and understanding some of the concerns that you all have?
5: I feel like that's something that's been missing and there has been a lack of connection in is, I guess, um, this stereotype that we're not, that we're only just on social media, that we're not trying to Um, raise awareness in our community we're just like we're just ranting and we're just these terrible teenagers we're bad and I feel like we kind of need to get rid of that certain bias and start realizing that teenagers are trying to come in teenagers are trying to help and they're trying to do better and um, I think if we can end that then there'll be way more like better conversations within teens and
2: adults and I think as a former teenager uh, Kate and Jacques Corey and I can both say we all been there too <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so we'll hear from Isabella Cavaness she's a youth ambassador for 21st century leaders. also Kate Hewitt, the organization's executive director and Professor Jacques Cory Cormier. He's a century leader alum and volunteer. That full conversation coming up tomorrow on closer look.
3: Hey, y'all,
1: I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm-hmm. WABE. <laughs>